Hey, we are continuing in our series today in Genesis. In the beginning, we've gone through from chapter 1 from the very beginning of Genesis, and today we're going to be looking at chapters 18 and 19. I'm not giving you a great, fantastic joke that you can tell all week long like usual, because I'm just frankly not in a very joking mood. I'll just be really honest with you. This is a really uh, hard passage to preach. It's a hard passage to hear. I just pray that it'll be a blessing to you today. Uh, If you have small children, or if you're a guest today, I want to let you know we're talking about the destruction of Sodom. And uh, this sermon is actually rated R, uh, because there is extreme and graphic violence, and there is strong sexual content, including homosexuality and incest. So if you have a child here who is maybe less than four, uh, and you want to keep them with you, I think that's awesome. If you have a child somewhere between four and 12, if you want to take this opportunity to escort them to the children's ministry or, or something else, uh, I just want you to know that this is coming, and you're going to have to probably have conversations with them about that. In fact, I would encourage you to have a conversation with them, and if you have a child who's 12 or 13 or above, I would, if I could, I would insist you have a conversation with them. But since I can't do that, I would strongly urge you uh, and encourage you to have a conversation with your teenagers about this topic. This is something that they are going to be facing every single day. If they're not doing it at school, they're doing it on social media. If you don't let them on social media, they're doing it with their friends that they play ball with in the neighborhood. And so this is a, a good sermon for us to hear. I want to catch up where we're at. Abraham had just uh, saved Lot and his family, of course. If you weren't here last week, uh, you can hear all of the previous sermons on fogkc.com. Go there to our website and all the sermons are there. They're usually on by Tuesday uh, of every week. And so this one, I've already been told after the first service that many people are going to be connecting people to our website this week. And so it'll probably be on there by Tuesday. So you can listen to the previous ones there or point people to this one by Tuesday. So here, here's what happens. Uh, Abraham is now uh, kind of lounging uh, under a tree where this is in the Middle East. The, I mean, we think we have bad weather here in Kansas City. The temperature can be the difference, about, uh, probably at the highest, about 60, 50 to 60 degrees difference in the sun or in the shade at the same time. And so he's laying under a tree and lounging, and three men come to visit Abraham. He recognizes them immediately as supernatural because he does some things. The way that he reacts to them, he knows that something is up. He knows uh, that they are supernatural in some way. He doesn't know who they are yet, but he comes to understand that through their conversation. Here's how we know that they're supernatural. He ran to them and he bowed. He's the patriarch of his family. People don't do that. He gets water to wash their feet. He has Sarah make three large loaves of bread as fast as she can. He finds a young calf and he has it sacrificed and he has a servant prepare it for a meal. He brings curds, cheese curds and milk to them. I was going to put up a meal from Culver's and thinking, well, there it is. You know, uh, burger and cheese curds right there. But here's the interesting thing also. He stood by while they ate. He was the host. He didn't participate with them. He stood by and watched them eat as though he was their servant. Now we see through the conversation that one of these men was actually the Lord. The Lord. And we know this because they use the word, the Hebrew word Yahweh, which is for God himself. Now we call this a theophany. A theophany is the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ appearing to someone in the Old Testament. 
One of the great differences between us and Jesus, although he was 100% man, he was 100% God. Uh, Our eternal souls came into existence at the moment of our conception. Jesus' eternal soul has always existed. He has existed in eternity past. He will exist in eternity future. We saw him even in Genesis 1.1 that he participated with the Trinity as part of the Creator. And so this is a place where Jesus has, takes on kind of a human form in the Old Testament to have a conversation with Abraham. The other two are heavenly messengers from God. They are angels. And so these three are there. He gives them this great meal. And then I want you to see what happens in verses, uh, I'm not going to read all the verses today, but, but I'm, so I'm skipping some of them, but you can go back and read chapter 18 and 19, I'd encourage you to do that. Uh, but we're going to read Genesis chapter 18, verses 9 through 15, because here's what we see there. The Lord visits Abraham and reiterates his promise. Remember, he has become, he's, he's come into this covenant relationship uh, with Abraham over the last three or four chapters, he's been kind of uh, unveiling his promise, unveiling his covenant with him a little bit at a time. And here he continues not to really relate more or relay more, but he just confirms it and reiterates it. Look what it says in chapter 18, verses 9 through 15. They said to him, the, the men said to him, Abraham, where's Sarah, your wife? And he said, she is in the tent. The Lord said... I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. That was part of the promise. Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, no, but you did laugh. Let's talk about some things in this chapter that we see. First of all, Sarah will be 90, possibly 91, when she has a son next year. Abraham will be 100 when their son will be born. And Sarah laughs because she's saying, listen, it's, it's, I, my menstrual cycle stopped years and years ago. I haven't been able to have children for decades. And Adam, I mean, he's 100, come on. And now, Lord, you think this is gonna happen? Come on, she kind of laughed, as probably any of us would do. But this had already been promised. There's something very interesting that the Lord says. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Now, folks, that's just something we should write down on our hearts. Is anything too hard for the Lord? When God calls us somewhere, when God wants us to do something, when he is leading us and guiding us, when the doctor comes in and says, it looks bleak, is anything too hard for the Lord? Now, luckily, nobody answers the question. Because it's a rhetorical question, uh, Jesus wasn't looking for an answer because the answer should be obvious to everyone. Of course not. Of course not. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. And I want you to understand here that Sarah was probably out of eyeshot and possibly even out of earshot. She is in the tent. She is behind the door. She's behind Abraham. And yet, when Jesus tells Abraham, you're going to have a son this time next year, Sarah chuckles a little bit. 
Now, it's interesting that the words that are used there don't actually mean she laughs out loud. She doesn't go, I'm listening. (laughs) Oh, yeah. She doesn't do that. She just kind of does one of these. Kind of inwardly. And yet, God sees. Folks, we need to remember, nothing gets by God. He sees everything. In our most private, in our most personal moments, God sees everything. He saw Sarah laugh, even though she was in the tent. She was behind the door of the tent. And perhaps out of earshot, God knew that she had laughed. God reminds both Abraham and Sarah of his promise for a son. Now he tells them when it will be accomplished. He says, this is going to happen by next year. And when Sarah says, well, I didn't do that, Lord. I didn't laugh. The Lord says, well, you did so. Yeah, you did. I think we need to be careful. We need to be careful when we have our hand in the cookie jar and Jesus says, oh, you're getting a cookie. We don't go, no, I'm not. No, I'm not. I remember when my daughter was about uh, four, she uh, was coloring on the wall, just doing a great mural. I walked by her door and I said, Mandy, stop. Do not color on the wall. Her hand never stopped. She looked me square in the eye and said, I'm not. (laughs) Now, that's funny, but folks, when do we do that? When do we do that? Something to think about. And so we see that God's promise for Abraham and Sarah is reiterated. He supports it. He says it's going to happen again. And he says it's going to happen by next year. It is going to be there. Now we see that Abraham, we see the purpose of the two angels and Jesus coming to Abraham was not just to reiterate God's promise to him, but they talk about the city Sodom. And Abraham begs for mercy for Sodom. Look what it says in verses 20 through 33 of chapter 18. Then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find it Sodom, 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for the lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. Again he spoke to him and said, Suppose forty are found there. He answered, For the sake of forty, I will not do it. Then he said, Oh, let not... Come on. Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. 
He answered, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak again, but this once. Suppose 10 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham and Abraham returned to his place. Now we aren't told in this passage exactly the motive of Abraham, why he begs for mercy for the city of Sodom. Now we do know that his nephew Lot, whom he loves dearly, is in the city. So we could probably surmise uh, that he was worried about his nephew, even though this passage doesn't specifically say that. He was worried about Lot and probably his family who was with him. He had a wife and two daughters and their engaged husbands. God already knew who was righteous, folks. He already knew who was righteous. Abraham was not negotiating some incredible deal, okay? He was not uh, trying to negotiate something from God and trying to get God to change his mind from something. But this interaction with God was growing their relationship. Abraham acknowledged several times through the passage about his humanness. He said, I am just, I am just dust and ashes. Who am I to speak to the Lord? But still, God, can I ask you this? This relationship was growing through this conversation. He also mentioned God's greatness in the request several times. You see, prayer is not about changing God's mind about something, folks. It's really about him changing us. Sometimes when we ask God to do things, uh, we think we're trying to beg him to do something different than what his will is. But in reality, through that process, we are growing. We are changing. My prayers when I was uh, 16 were about getting things and winning things and being who I wanted to be. My prayers today are more about uh, praying for others, begging God for mercy for others. It's not about what I get. And so I can see how prayer has changed me through the years. Pastor Derek preached a great sermon on this about a, a year or so ago. Perhaps Abraham actually had compassion for the people of the city, even knowing their great sinfulness. The Bible uses the word here that their sinfulness was very grave. Now, that's a very similar word to the word grave that we would use uh, for somebody's level at the hospital. You know, if somebody's in an accident, they're either in serious condition or critical condition or grave condition. And when somebody's in grave condition, it's like, man, they're, they're barely hanging on. We, we probably don't expect them to make it. They're in grave condition. These people's sin was so prevalent, it was so... Uh, perverted that God was saying their sin is grave. It's causing them to hang on by a thread. He, it was interesting that he asked God only to spare the righteous. Did you notice that Abraham never asked God to spare the city? He said, if there are righteous men found in the city, would you at least spare them? And God said, hey, listen, if I find some righteous men in this city, I'll spare them all. I'll spare them all because God knew that except for Lot and his family, there were none righteous to be found. He knew what was going on in Sodom. He wasn't surprised. When it says he was going down to see what they were doing, it wasn't to discover something as if he didn't already know. It was to confirm what he already knew and see it taking place. Now let's see how the men of Sodom acted when the two angels got there. Because I want you to understand that this behavior we're going to see here, it just 
characterizes their whole lives. It characterizes the whole city. And I want you to notice how many men are involved in what takes place here. Because we see here that Lot and his family are protected from what God is about to do. Look at Genesis chapter 19, verses 1 through 22. It says, The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, because he knew they were supernatural too, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Now they weren't wanting to get, you know, just make a friendship. That, that word know means to know them as Adam knew Eve in Genesis chapter 2. Okay, they wanted to have sexual relations with these men. It says, bring them out so that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, have you anyone else here? Sons-in-laws, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city, bring them out of this place. For we are about to destroy this place because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law who were to marry his daughters, Up! Get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up! Take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you let us be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered, so the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, and Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me, and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar. Now we see here that Lot and his family are protected. What happens here is these men come to uh, Lot 
And uh, Lot brings them into his home, and, and, and as is custom then, when you come under somebody's roof, you're under their protection. Every last man in the city, every last one, comes and surrounds the house and says, give us those men. We want them for our own purpose. Send them out here, Lot. Hurry up. Let's go. Lot, wanting to protect these men, knowing that they're supernatural men and knowing that he has a responsibility before God, he steps out the door and slams it behind him and says, guys, I'm begging you, please don't do this. In fact, I'm begging you not to do this so, so incredibly that I have two daughters who are virgins. I will give them to you and you can do whatever you want with them. Please, please don't hurt these men. And in the middle of that conversation, these men say, okay, Lot, you don't want to give them to us? We're still going to get them, and we're going to do the same or worse to you. And at that point, the angels reach outside the door and yank Lot in, and it's interesting, he doesn't shut the door, they shut the door, much in the same verbiage as God shut the door of the ark. So they shut the door, the angels shut the door, they blind the men, they can't find their way in. Then in the morning, they go to get up, leave the city, the sons-in-law or soon-to-be sons-in-law think he's joking around, so they stay there to die. But God, in his infinite mercy and grace, save Lot and his wife and his two daughters. Even when he hesitates, the angels grab his hand and basically drag him out of the city. I want you to see here, folks, that always, 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 when God's judgment and wrath come, it is always balanced with mercy and grace for those who want to serve him, for those who want to follow him. And then the destruction of Sodom comes. Look at verses 23 through 29. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. When God saves Lot and his wife and gets his, them and his two daughters out of there, the towns of Sodom and Gomorrah are utterly devastated. Think about this, folks. There are men, women, and children in this city, and fire and brimstone fall from the sky and, and kill everyone, kill everything. There were no plants left. People ask me sometimes, now, are you one of them fire and brimstone pastors? Hey, only when it's in the text. How, how do I avoid that? How, how, do I, how do I not preach that? That's what happened. Get a picture in your mind of this incredible devastation. Fire falling from the sky, hitting people. They begin to burn. They run around. They're trying to escape, trying to save their own lives, and yet it continues and continues and continues until the cities were left in ashes. These two towns, but especially Sodom, 
were destroyed because of the level of perversion of sexuality that was taking place. That's why. That's why. There's, there's no misunderstanding about that. Uh, if you want to bother to Google it and look at it later, I don't have time today to talk about it. But they think they found this, the city of Sodom a few years back. They think they found the city of Sodom. There's a city that was actually kind of ahead in the civilization races. And something happened to the city in 700 B.C. that just wiped it out. I mean, it just stopped. All of a sudden, everything in the, in the whole city just stopped. And then there were layers of dirt on top of that as though the city just for some reason, vanished from being inhabited. They think that that's probably Sodom, what they found. Now, we're going to come back to this point in a minute, folks, because we got to talk about this more. we got to talk about this more. We are, we are living in a culture, and your children are growing up in a culture that is lying and deceiving them about this. We've got to come back and talk about this in a minute, but let me finish chapter 19. We see, finally, uh, after the destruction of Sodom comes, Lot's daughters commit sin against Lot. Look in Genesis chapter 19, verses 30 through 38. Now Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day, the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of, of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. Now again, like Abraham and Sarah took matters into their own hands when they didn't think God's promise was going to take place because they were becoming too old, if you remember, Sarah gave her servant Hagar to Abraham as a surrogate. He said, hey, you, you have sex with my servant and have a child with her, and that'll be, that'll, we'll fix this thing. We'll, we'll fix this problem of being too old. Lot's daughters basically took matters into their own hands, just like Abraham and Sarah had done, because they wanted to have heirs for Lot. Lot had no sons. Lot's wife was now gone, and all he was left with was his two daughters, and their husbands were gone. So these girls, instead of praying, instead of begging God, instead of, of, of searching uh, from God for some answers, they took matters into their own hands. They got their father drunk. They had sex with him, and they both became pregnant by their father. Folks, listen. This just never goes well. When we take matters into our own hands and we ignore or disobey God, it just never goes well for us. When we don't seek God's plan and we don't seek his will and we don't seek to live within what he wants for us, it just never goes well. Now, we don't have time to do this today, but you can read about the Moabites and the Ammonites throughout the rest of the Old Testament and see what their lives were like. These are the descendants of Lot, born out of this incestuous relationship. It doesn't go well. It doesn't go well. Now, let's go back 
to the issue at Sodom. We live in a culture that has normalized and justifies the act of homosexuality along with transgenderism and every other perversion of God's plan for marriage and sexuality. Yes, I said that. You may say, what do people, you know, what people do in their own home doesn't concern me. Really? Doesn't concern you? Doesn't concern you about the culture? When God's judgment comes, folks, you better be praying not to get caught up as collateral damage Because if our country continues going down a path to accept and normalize this kind of perversion and to kill babies at an alarming rate higher uh, than the Nazis killed Jews, God's judgment will come. In fact, two weeks ago, the United Methodist Church had a special meeting, the whole denomination had a special meeting to decide whether or not to allow for practicing homosexuals to be ordained as clergy, as pastors, and whether or not to allow clergy to perform gay gay weddings. While the vote was to continue not to allow it, as was previously the policy, it was only because of the African pastors that were here in the United States at this conference that this vote went the biblical way. The vast majority of United Methodist ministers and churches in the United States voted to allow gay clergy and gay weddings, just like the Anglicans, just like certain Presbyterians, and and even in the Catholic Church. This is going that direction. Their pastor has an apostate view of the scripture that no one can ever really know what it means because it's really left to a person's interpretation. Apostate view means that he has basically turned his back on the precepts and the basic tenets of the faith. Folks, the act of homosexuality and God's judgments against it is clear throughout the scripture. There is no ambiguity at all and is not just supported by a couple of Old Testament passages as some of my friends say to me on Facebook. We've got to teach our kids and our grandkids the truth about this. Folks, they are living in a world that is lying to them. Satan is the father of lies. He is lying to them. I want you to see in the next few moments how prevalent this is throughout God's word. I was really... I've heard the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. I read it when I was a child. I've read it several times. I've never done, until this week, I've never done a word study on the word Sodom throughout the word of God. It blew my mind. I want you to see it. First of all, some people say, well, Jesus never taught on homosexuality. It wasn't an issue for Jesus. Oh, really? Look at Matthew 5, 17 says, this is Jesus speaking, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have, come to, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Folks, Jesus did not come to negate the morality of the Old Testament. He didn't. But he came to provide payment for its legal debt. He fulfilled the law, not by tossing it to the wind and saying it doesn't matter anymore, but by paying what it demanded. That's how he fulfilled it. He supported it. He supported the morality of the Old Testament. Look at Matthew chapter 19, verses 4 and 5. Jesus reiterates the definition of marriage. He said, have you not read that, this is Jesus talking, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female 
and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Jesus reiterated the definition of marriage. It is between one man and one woman to last a lifetime. It is a divine standard with absolutely no change in its definition here, folks. And it's interesting that Jesus says, haven't you heard what it was said from the beginning? And oh, by the way, I created it. I should know. Folks, throughout the entire New Testament, the standard stays the same. It never changes. Romans 1, verses 18 through 27 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteous suppress, or unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now look at the process that takes place here. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Look what happens. First, they turn their back on God and say, I'm going to do my own thing my own way. And then God says, fine, you want to be your own God? I'm going to let you loose. I'm going to turn my back and let you darken your own heart and your own mind. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, because they turned their back on God, they were already apostates, they were already heretics, uh, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Folks, we see the same standard here. It's going against God and turning their back on what God wants and believes stirs up this perversion of God's standards. Folks, to the scripture, to God's word, the thought of a Christian practicing, homosexual, practicing homosexuality is completely and utterly ridiculous. Listen to me here. The thought of a follower of Jesus Christ practicing, not being tempted by, not occasionally giving into, practicing homosexuality is completely and utterly ridiculous. Now, there certainly may be Christians who struggle with same-gender attraction. I believe that's true. And they fight against it their whole lives. But there cannot be a Christian who goes around defending the practice of homosexuality as a righteous and godly lifestyle. Find somebody in the scripture that's like that. Find somebody in the scripture who embraces lying, who says, I'm a born liar, I'll always lie. I lie about everything, and I'm going to embrace it as a lifestyle, and I want, I want you all to come and lie with me, and we're just going to be all liars together. We're going to have parades, we're going to have a special flag, we're going to do all this stuff and see if they're a follower of Jesus. They aren't. By the way, this word practicing is critical because it's not somebody who says, Man, I know this is wrong. I'm trying really hard not to do this, but I'm tempted by it. And I'm sometimes, I'm just not perfect. I give into it. Welcome to the club. None of us.
us in this room are perfect. But when you say, I'm going to embrace my sin to the point that I'm actually practicing it, which means I'm not only doing it consistently, but I'm getting better at it, right? When you practice the piano, hopefully you're doing it because you're getting better. When you practice sin, folks, God just lets you go. Fine. You want to go? Go. Look at 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. Folks, this is important to hear here. Listen, you practice all of these sins, any of these sins, including homosexuality, if you're practicing them on a consistent basis and you're embracing them as a lifestyle, you cannot inherit the kingdom of God. And and right here we see that Paul writes, listen, some of you were like this before, before you knew Jesus. But when you came to know Jesus really, He washed that stuff out of your life. Doesn't mean you might not be tempted. Doesn't mean you might not struggle. But he washed that practicing stuff out of your life, folks. And you have to to be washed, the stuff washed out of our lives because it's something that's spiritually filthy. That's really the implication. Look at 1 Timothy 1. It says, now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God of, with which I have been entrusted. Now look at this. It lists a bunch of these sins here again. It lists homosexuality among them again. And it says it's not only contrary to sound doctrine, it's contrary to the gospel. It's contrary to the good news of Jesus. You say that you put your faith and trust in Jesus to save you and give you a new heart, give you a new mind, and yet you continue practicing these things on a regular basis, doesn't work. Doesn't work, folks. It's not only contrary to what's true doctrine, it's contrary to the gospel. Jude 7. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal Fire. Folks, they weren't just burned to death on the field. God shows his condemnation of those who turn their backs on him and practice these sins. Here, Sodom and Gomorrah are an example of God's judgment and vengeance because he's a holy God. Now, for those of you who, who have been told, hey, the Bible only talks about these a couple of times, it's all in the Old Testament. I don't have time to read all these. We'd be here till Tuesday. But I want you to see that Sodom is constantly being viewed in God's word as the living example of his judgment. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 29. It's in Isaiah chapter 3 verse 9 and chapter 13 verse 19. It's in Jeremiah. It's in Ezekiel. It's in Lamentations 4, Amos 4, Zephaniah 2, Matthew 10, Luke 10, Luke 17, Romans 9, 2 Peter 2, and Revelation 11. 
Folks, from Genesis to Revelation, the Bible says, look at Sodom. Look what these men did. Look who these men were. This is an example of God's holy judgment. We are told, and I'm sure I will be called when this sermon hits the internet, I'll be, be called unloving. You're, you're a very unloving person, Michael. You're, you're uninclusive. Folks, listen. Nothing can be farther from the truth. I have friends who struggle with this and who embrace this as a lifestyle. I love them. I beg God to show mercy on them. I beg him to somehow reach their hearts even though he's turned them away to their own lusts. Folks, listen, the most unloving thing a person can do on this planet is to know someone is facing eternal judgment and refuse to tell them. I don't know, I, I just don't know anything more unloving than that. I don't know any greater way to say to someone, I could care less about you, but to know that you're practicing something that will eternally separate you from God. Man, they're the unloving ones. They won't tell them. They are those who would allow their friends, their children, and their grandchildren to split hell wide open in order to spare their feelings and reinforce and justify their sin. Folks, we were all saved out of sin if we, if we know Jesus. But we need to see homosexuality for what it is and don't let the world turn it into something it isn't. Some say, well, Michael, that's just really mean because I, I was born this way. I, I've known since I was a child. Of course you were. We were all born with a wretched sin nature that will damn our eternal souls unless we turn to Jesus. Of course you were born with those problems. I was born with a lot of other problems. The deepest and most perverse justification, folks, is that the Bible permits this behavior or allows it on any level. Anybody who says that is a liar, and if they know the truth and are lying about it, they are an apostate. It's a perversion of God's plan and his design. This behavior is not something you, you uh, the behavior is not something you cannot change. It's a choice you make. Once you admit it's a sin, you can be delivered from it. Now listen, I have my own issues. I have uh, sins that I've struggled with since I was a child. They're not this one, but there's others. But every single time I'm tempted, I come to that why in the road, and I either choose to do what God wants or I choose to do what I want, just like they are. It's not something, you may not be able to control the temptation, but you certainly control the choices. All sin is the same, folks, in that it breaks God's heart and it separates us from him. But this is the only sin that God has destroyed a city over, and has become the example for all time of God's wrath and eternal punishment. There's, that's just, that's a fact. I want you to know, if you're here and you're struggling with something like that, and you're feeling really judged right now, I don't want you to feel judged. I want you to know you can be liberated. You can get freedom through a relationship with Jesus Christ. You may be tempted in this area or know someone who is, but the moment you embrace it as normal and righteous before God, you thumb your nose at him and invite his wrath and eternal punishment into your life. We are all sinners. 
But this is the deepest pit of sin. It is a perversion of God's creation. The good news is not that homosexuality is acceptable before God, but the good news is that God can redeem someone from this temptation, this acceptance, and the penalty that goes along with it, folks. As long as I'm a pastor here and I have any breath left in me, and as long as the pastors that are currently on staff here are here, we will never preach or accept the gospel of accommodation. We will never preach a gospel that says, hey, everything is okay, we just want you to come here and be a part of us. That's just not godly, folks. It's just not true. We offer mercy and grace to all that are being tempted in this and every other way. But you have to repent and turn away from that sin and give your life to Jesus to ever, ever experience freedom. You have to. Young people in this room, there's a lot of you in here this time. Apparently you don't get up early to come to church. <laughs> Listen, kids, don't fall for the lies of the devil that this behavior is acceptable before God. It is not normal or righteous before God in any way, shape, or form. And parents... When I hear parents say, well, I try not to tell my kids what to think. I let them try to decide on my own. Listen, when they're 20 and 25 and 30, you don't have to let them decide on their own. They're going to decide on their own, okay? You can't control them. But when they're 6 and when they're 8 and when they're 12 and when they're 14 and they come home uh, with a book that's called Judy Has Two Daddies, you need to sit down with them and you need to tell them what God's word says about this. Don't be shy Realize you're not being unloving. You're being the most loving person in the world. Listen, if I see somebody standing with their back to a freight train on the tracks and they don't see it coming, or even if they're facing it, they see it coming and they believe it's a mirage, the most loving thing I can do is to run at them as hard as I can and just tackle them off the tracks. And if I could do that for some of my friends, man, I would do it. But folks, you don't just say, well, it's their choice. Good luck. I hope it works out for you. That is so unloving. That is hateful. I pray for us that God will help Fellowship of Grace be a banner of mercy and grace and love to this community but folks, we have got to be careful never, never, never to start trimming the edges off of God's word to make it accommodate what we wish God would say. We just can't do that. Because when we do that, we have become an apostate. We have decided we know better than God. And God have mercy on us if we ever do that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. God, I thank you for your mercy and your grace that save me from my sins. God, forgive me where I fail you and for where I continue to fail you. Help me to repent in a greater way. Help me to turn away in a greater way. Give me your power and your spirit to turn from my sin and become a better reflection of Jesus every day. Father, help us to uphold the standard of your word in this area. Help us to remember the city of Sodom, the men, the women, the children, who were just destroyed utterly because of this sinfulness. God, help us love those who are struggling. 
but help us to love them by pointing them to the truth, not by ignoring it and letting them do what they choose without the truth there. We love you, Father. We are so thankful for your mercy and grace. Help us to be uh, just a lamp that shines your light throughout this community. And Father, we pray for our friends and our neighbors, our loved ones, our children, our grandchildren that might be struggling with this or any other sin. God, help us to love them, but to be truthful with them about your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.